So yes, good morning. We are on the final day. As I said, I really wish I had uh, a couple of weeks to go into this stuff with you. Because um, we are just really just skimming the surface of, of a spiritual boot camp here. I mean, boot camp is usually weeks long. We've only got one, you know, five days basically, not even a full week that we get to do this. We have covered about how the war is relevant, that the Bible, I've, I've given you many hors d'oeuvres from what I could give you in a short period of time, showing you that, that the Bible is real. Um, it is um, scientifically accurate. There are many things to it um, that you can truly put your faith in. It is, it is, I believe, the truth. We've also taken a look at what God asks us to do, that he takes us into warfare. He leads us. He tells us to be silent many times because he'll lead us off into a dead end so that he can perform some type of miraculous thing and pull us out of it, which builds our faith and it builds our trust. And that's what he asked for, for us to trust and obey him. Sometimes God, even though we're walking close with God, he calls us to difficult situations. In some cases, we saw some soldiers of the Lord in this army who have paid the ultimate price that sometimes God requires that of us. Then we've got into Ephesians chapter 6, where we get into the armor that God has prepared. He didn't left, leave us out there to do battle unprepared. He gave us a phenomenal amount of weaponry and armor to protect us and help us to live this abundant life, to live a joyful life, and to be able to withstand the attacks of the enemy. But too often, as we've seen, it's really not taught very accurately. And more sadly is that we seldom ever put on the whole armor of God that we are commanded to do. Now today we're on the last three pieces. Now this is interesting because a lot of sermons and a lot of Bible studies and stuff like this, if you pick up a thing on the armor of God, it will list the ones we've covered so far, but sometimes they leave out some of the key things. Some major key things. I don't know, I'm just going to show up. I'm not going to make a big advertisement or anything about this, but this is a little pamphlet that is put out that shows the armor of God. It's a little study Bible thing, or study guide thing for doing a Bible study on it. You've seen things like this, these trifold or multifolded things. And here's one on the armor of God, and it has them in order. The belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, a page on the feet prepared with the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, which we talked about yesterday. Today we're doing the helmet of salvation. You can see I have a Roman helmet sitting on my desk. We're also doing the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. We have that. You see swords laying up here. But you notice it ends there. But it doesn't end there in Scripture. Remember, this is a paragraph. It's amazing how many times when we study this, they cut off the last one mid-sentence. There's another weapon that is described here, but it's not even in this packet. And it's like this many times. They cut off the thing. See, if you can pick it up what it is, if you don't know offhand, as we go through our passage here this morning. But let's open in prayer first, and then we'll get into this. Father, we just thank you again for this day and the safety. Lord, through the, the night and the health that you have given us. That now, Lord, we come in here. I know that there are some who have told me that they are really searching and just hungering for more and more from your spirit and your word. Others, Lord, I still think they're probably just sitting in here because they were required to go, or some might not even have any idea why they're sitting here. 
I fear that there are some here who have never even committed their life to you, that have never accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, never accepted your offer of grace. And this doesn't even pertain to them. My prayer, as I've said all week, is that we would, one, become children of God, that we would all accept your offer of grace. But Lord, for the Christians then are who we are, that we would be able to put this on and learn from this and that your spirit would empower us to be able to do battle so we can, we can live a better life with less hassles and hang-ups and problems and be more joyful and more happy. You've given us 66 love letters telling us how to do this. We just ask, Lord, that as we explore this, this last lesson here today, that you would, again, your Holy Spirit do the teaching and open up of our hearts and our minds what it is you would have us to know. In Jesus' name, amen. So taking a look at our passage, as we read this one final time today, Ephesians 6, 10 through 20, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against the flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly, as I ought to speak. Great passage. Did you catch that there is a, another weapon that's often not described? It is called prayer. Did you notice, too, they cut it off mid-sentence? In some translations, yes, it ends, and that starts a new sentence, but that's not in the original language like that. That is still a continuation of the other sentence. So, yeah, there is a, another one that's often neglected, um, and you have lessons on the armor of God, which is very sad. But let's get to the first one here. Since we have limited time here today, about 35 minutes left, the helmet of salvation. It says in Ephesians chapter 6, 17, and take the helmet of salvation. Helmets are interesting things. As a kid, I always wanted to have an army helmet. I had a plastic one, because that's all they sold in the, like little dime stores and stuff. And I remember fondly running around with my army helmet and my little toy gun, little Thompson machine gun, playing guns when I was a kid. Uh, did that helmet really do anything to protect me? No, it was plastic. It was just molded plastic. You could bend it, you could sit on it. Um, I remember one time my dad told me like, when I was uh, younger that I asked questions to my dad, how, how did you cook some of your meals and stuff like this if you had to cook things uh, when you're out in the field? He says, you cook in your helmet. And what do you go to the bathroom in? Your helmet. And I was like, oh, that sounds gross right there. <laughs> you clean it first, dummy. I go, oh yeah, yeah that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, it flavors your food in a different way. No. But, so I, as being a child, an elementary school child, and not too bright, I decided one day that I was going to cook 
my meal in my plastic helmet. So I went out and built a fire, which I was not supposed to do anyway. And then I put, I think, I, if I'm not mistaken, I think I put a bunch of eggs. I took some eggs out of the kitchen, cracked them in there, and put them inside the helmet. And then held the helmet with my, my hands, because I didn't know what I was doing, over the fire. Well, I didn't quite cook the eggs the way I thought they would cook. And the helmet melted and caught on fire. And I was like, this isn't working. <laughs> so uh, then I had to hide that helmet because I was, couldn't wait for my dad to find out. Like, what'd you do to your helmet? <laughs> My brain exploded. They had no. <laughs> it had egg everywhere. Yeah, helmets are really an interesting thing. Do you know that um, back, like even the American Civil War, which is often called the first modern war, um, they didn't wear helmets too often. A lot of places when in the valley had a sock hat on or just a cloth piece. Some uh, uh, regiments had fur that they wore, um, and this went on until just in the 1800s. Um, they started changing, and they started thinking, maybe we ought to give some protection to the head. So they started making these, these little helmets and stuff. The British were one of the first ones to adopt this, and they had a thing, I think it was called the, the bobby. Um, you've all seen the World War I-style flat thing. In America, they called it the dishpan, but it was a small, or I think the Germans called it the dishpan. No, the Germans called it the salad bowl. That's what they call it. But these little helmets, they weren't the best thing, and, but they did protect. The, the, the helmet can protect you. Certain regiments, they'll refuse to wear it during different wars. The Boer War, the, the British started using helmets, pith helmets and stuff in the Boer War. Then uh, you get into World War I, they started issuing helmets. Some regiments just in general did not like these helmets. They thought, no, this is heavy on top of your head. It's going to give you a headache. It's not going to do any good. Let's keep our sock cap. They went through World War II. Certain regiments would refuse. They, their commanding officers refused to let their soldiers wear helmets. Get into World War II, same thing happened. Certain regiments, most people were, were wearing helmets now. Certain regiments, particularly one in particular in the British Army, refused to wear helmets. They were very proud of wearing just a sock hat on their head. And of course, shrapnel and bullets and stuff are not, that's not much protection. It was during the Korean War, they finally did a study and they found out how many people were being having head injuries that could be avoided if they had a helmet on. So now it's pretty well standard. Even special forces today in the United States, you know, we have the green beret, you have these berets that they wear. When they go into battle, sometimes they wear those, but often they wear like a, um, a Kevlar helmet or a special helmet. Now they're making them out of plastic. These military helmets, the, uh, the Mitch helmet and others, and you wear these kind of things. Even they will wear those for certain combat. Depends on what kind of combat you're going into. But the helmet is important because it protects your noggin. I remember a story my dad telling me that when during one of the fights that he was in during World War II, as um, he was fighting in the Pacific against the Japanese, his buddy, they were getting shot at from every direction, and he says, the guy who was sitting right next, or standing right next to me as we were fighting and shooting, um, got hit in the helmet, got hit in the head. And a bullet went right into the helmet here and exited on the other side, and his buddy went down. He thought, well, he's dead. They kept fighting, kept fighting after the battle was over, he leans over to you know, see how badly, his, if there's any chance of surviving, his buddy who was laying there. And as he pulled the guy up and stuff, they found out he was still breathing fine. And when he took his helmet off, even though the bullet went in on like the right side and came out on the left, he said, I took the helmet off. You could see the bullet in, coming into the helmet. It spun around inside the helmet. It made a groove. It circled in a perfect circle a number of times and then exited out the other side of the helmet. So it looked like he got shot right through the head, but he was fine. He had a concussion, but he lived. My dad said it was the most amazing thing he ever saw, how this bullet went right through that. 
Hey, helmets are there to protect you. They protect your head. Now, helmets were made in the Roman days, is when this was written, were made mostly of, of metal, but there were some leather ones. Um, you could have it made just out of ordinary leather if you didn't have money to buy a nice one. Um, but they were usually uh, metal, beaten metal. As you can see, I have a Roman uh, officer's helmet sitting right here. And there's basically three parts to this. You have this horse hair up here, this plumage, which indicated um, being it's going front and back. This is an officer, not a centurion. The centurions generally went this direction, so you could tell them in battle. But these guys would have this in different colors and stuff, though red was the most common, but different type of plumage there for identification. Then it had the crown, the part that sat on your head. There were cheek guards on the sides, and there was a neck guard in, in the back. It's very heavy. After class, if some of you want to come up here and try putting this thing on, it's not the most comfortable thing to wear because I do not have the liner. They would have a leather cap and then a sponge liner they put in there, and they would wear it like that. I don't have that. So this sitting on your head, it's heavy. Um, if some of you are friends of mine on Facebook, you've probably seen pictures of me walking around here wearing that thing here in the Nature Center. I have been known to dress up at times. And I don't need an excuse. Though my favorite costume is dressing up as a pirate. I do that quite frequently. Um, but that's because my ancestors on my dad's side were Caribbean pirates, so I'm just carrying on the legacy there. Um, true. But the obvious reason to wear a helmet in a battle is to pr protect your head from injury. You get hit by a, a, you know, even a glancing blow without a helmet. A glancing blow could be fatal to you. With a helmet, it could save your life. Uh, a sword coming down, or an arrow and a glancing blow, or even a stone that would be shot from a sling hitting you. I mean, it killed Goliath, but if it was to be a glancing blow off the side of your helmet, it could save your life. So helmets are important. And this is an actual photograph I took of a Roman helmet. This is just like a private, if you want a, a lowest class soldier. But this was found, um, it's a legionnaire's helmet. This is from the first century. It was found there by Jerusalem. That's a first century Roman helmet from the time of Christ. That's what it looks like. You'll see it's very similar to what I have right there, sitting on the desk. Only this is not an officer's, that's an officer's. Outside of that, it's basically the same thing, only, of course, that's super old. Now, Paul refers to, as we've talked about so many times, why did he call this that? Why did he call this that? He refers to the helmet as the salvation of the person. Now, I've heard this taught incorrectly a number of times. And I want you to understand this. This is very, very important. Putting this helmet on, as it says, to put on the helmet of salvation. To put on, for you to pick up a helmet and put it on, cannot cannot refer to a person accepting Jesus Christ as their savior. Though I've heard pastors at pulpits and Sunday school teachers say that's what this is describing. This is a verse that's telling you to get saved. No, it is not. Remember who this is written to? Christians. These are people who are already saved. That's so important. Don't lose track of that. We, we take things then out of context when we realize that this is written uh, to Christians, and if we don't think about this, we can pull verses out and get verses to mean different things than what they're supposed to. So it's very important when you do a Bible study, don't lose the context. Remember, this is a paragraph, too. What's going on? He's armoring us for doing battle. This is salvation that people often talk about. That Yeah, accepting Jesus Christ as your Savior, that's putting on your helmet of salvation. No, because if that was true, that would mean that you earn your salvation because he's telling you, oh, you go put this on. You, hey, go get yourself saved. We are not saved by any action that we do. This book of Ephesians makes it very clear on that. For we are saved by grace through faith, not of works, not of anything that we do. So that cannot mean 
going out and getting saved. And like I say, this is written to Christians. They're already saved. So what does this mean then? If I already have salvation, why do I need to do an active action to take a helmet and put it on? Why would I have to do that if it means, if it's called salvation? To answer that, let me show you how our enemy attacks us. And this will make sense. In daily battle, Satan will try to strike your head. He goes after your mind. He will not go after your toenails that often because that's not going to injure you too much. He's not going to go after your, um, your gallbladder that much because there's other ways to attack you even more effective. He goes after your mind. And Satan wields, if you will, a sword also. He wields a very huge double-bladed sword. Like this is a broad sword. It used to be very sharp. If you do come up to the desk afterwards to hold this thing, I'm going to caution you. This part down here I never sharpened. This part used to be very sharp. I, I haven't sharpened it in years, and I don't plan to, because I've had people actually come up and grab this and get cut. So I'm just letting it dull up now. Also, uh, it's got banged up quite a bit, because I've actually had some, a few sword fights with this thing. Um, <laughs> my wife told me to get a hobby. <laughs> I, I used to love to fight with swords and stuff. You can't tell, but I have a nice cut right across here. I wear a beard now, but I do have a cut right underneath my chin here. It's from a sword fight. So, so you lost? No, actually, I won that one. <laughs> but um, we would fight to you draw first blood, but I'd already, the guy got mad after I won. <laughs> but Satan has a huge, heavy-duty, double-bladed sword. Double-bladed. Two edges. You can strike on one side, you can strike on another side. Either one, you can do damage like that. Now, this double-edged broadsword has two blades. This is what I have found, not just from reading scripture, but from experience. Satan's two primary ways of attacking your mind is through discouragement, that's like one side of this, and the other side is doubt. Discouragement and doubt. That is what he strikes you with. Let me show you how he does this to get this to make really good sense to you. Discouragement is a weapon. It's an effective weapon. He wouldn't be using it if it wasn't. And he hits your mind with it. He will swing at your head with discouragement, the side of the blade of discouragement, with reminders of our failures. He will bring up your past sins. He will hits you with poor health. Tell me about that one, <laughs> those of you who know me. And just about anything else negative he can draw upon to discourage you, he will do it. He is relentless. When you start falling and you're starting to feel it, he doesn't, oh, sorry I knocked you down. I'll give you a break. That's not Satan. He will start striking you harder and harder. When you get an enemy down on the ground, you knock him down, you don't like, okay, wait, uh, go ahead, get back up. No, when you get him on the ground, you just start whacking harder and harder and harder, and that's what he does. That's the discouragement part of this blade. He is very effective. When you start seeing yourself focusing on your failures, when you start finding yourself focusing on past sins, that's Satan attacking you. Try to remember that. Brand, just brand that onto your brain. When I start seeing these things happening to me, when I start noticing I'm, I'm focusing on these things, that is not God doing it. That is Satan attacking you, Christians, and that's how he loves to attack us. 
Christians who are not wearing this helmet of our salvation, we get discouraged really easy. We get discouraged, like in any battle, a force going into battle, and they're all discouraged and depressed. They don't have the charisma. They don't have the stamina. They're not going to make it through the fight. Satan knows that, and that's why he does this. We need to wear this helmet. We need to put this on. It's heavy. You don't wear this all the time. This was not in the aorist tense that you're going to wear this every moment. In circumstances, Paul says, in all circumstances, when any time you're getting ready to go into any type of battle, you get up in the morning, this is something you might want to put on. Because if you're going out into the world, you're going out into Satan's kingdom, you're going to be attacked. So you put this thing on. The other side of this sword is doubt. Doubt, the other side of the blade. Doubt is when we start doubting God's word as being true. When we start saying, well, there's certain parts of this I'll accept, but certain parts I just have a hard time believing. That's Satan doing that to you because he's getting you to doubt. You start doubting your salvation. Every single year since I, taught, uh, I teach and have been working with teens most of my life, I've many times come across high school age students who constantly ask me the same question. I'm not sure I'm a Christian. I get asked that. It's one of the most common questions I get. I'm not sure I'm a Christian. Christian, how do I know if I am or not? I usually tell them, go read the book of 1 John. It'll only take you like three or four minutes to do it. It's such a short book. That usually encourages it right there. You start letting God's word infiltrate your mind. The Holy Spirit starts teaching you what's in there, and you start saying, yeah, I am a Christian. I mean, some people have, they, they weren't, I've counseled. They're like, well, have you ever really come to a point of accepting Jesus Christ? Well, I know Jesus lives. I know that Jesus was, a, was the Son of God, that he rose from the grave, and that he's alive in heaven. I said, that's great. You don't even, Satan knows that. You think Satan doesn't know that Jesus is the Son of God? You think Satan doesn't know that he was raised from the dead? You think Satan doesn't know uh, that he's alive in heaven today, sitting on a throne? Satan knows that, and he's not saved. Because we often misinterpret what the word saved is. You get a word-for-word translation, start looking, the word believe. Go back to John 3, 16. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him. The word believes is not head knowledge. The word believes is the Greek word pistuo. Pistuo means to put your faith and commitment in. Satan does not do that to Jesus. Jesus' blood does not cover Satan, and Satan doesn't rely upon that for his salvation. Satan is not saved. But God offers us that. Not just knowing that Jesus died on the cross, just knowing that Jesus um, went to the, the cross for us, spilled his blood, was put in a tomb, rose from the dead, came back, ascended back into heaven. Satan knows all that. That doesn't make you saved. It's the word pistuo, meaning trust and commitment to. Those people who won the Medal of Honor, they had trusted and they were committed to Christ. Let me ask you right now, across the room, everybody who's listening, are you pistuo with Christ? Or do you just, you're just relying on head knowledge? Just the knowledge, the basic knowledge about Jesus Christ. Because that is not pistuo. And John, his gospel in particular, that's the key word in the book of John. He just keeps using the, the word pistuo constantly, all the way through this gospel. Constantly telling people, all the time. It's not head knowledge. It is a commitment. It is a trust that Jesus is God, that he can save you, that his blood does cover all your sins. But are you trusted and committed to that? If you've never accepted that, maybe you're relying on head knowledge, and that's not the saving faith. 
You think the demons in heaven don't know all that stuff about Jesus? God will get you to doubt your salvation. I'm not trying to play devil's advocate here, getting you to doubt. I'm just trying to get you to understand. That's what the word means. Because a lot of times we just sort of like, you know, oh, I want to become a Christian. Well, here, read this sinner's prayer. Do you know that the sinner's prayer is not found any place in the Bible? It's not. Don't believe me? Look it up yourself. I dare you to. <laughs> Look it up. You should. It's not in there. It's the points of what it is. Are you making a committed trust to Jesus Christ? Do you really believe that he is God, that he is capable of saving you, that his blood covers all your sin? Is that what you truly believe? And are you committed to that? Well, Satan loves, even for people who have made the right commitment, that they are in total pishtua with Christ, Satan will use that blade of doubt and try to get you to doubt your salvation. If he can get you to start doubting your salvation, you're going down. And he knows it, and that's why he wields that sword so well. These two edges work hand in hand. They are so effective. I have seen this so many times in my life in 59 years. I have seen so many Christians brought down, go into depression, go into all sorts of problems and stuff simply because they don't realize what they're being attacked with. And they don't recognize the attack when it comes. I'm trying to show you this is what you look for. If you wear this helmet, protecting your salvation, protecting your mind, I know beyond all shadow of a doubt, this is true. I asked some kids one time in a youth group class, I was teaching at a church, the first uh, youth group of the season, it was right at the beginning of the school year. I had all the kids sitting in the room and I called up one person, had her stand up and I said, tell me, why do you believe that the Bible's, well, yes, do you believe the Bible's real? She says, yes. I said, why do you believe the Bible's real? She says, because my parents told me so. I said, you, you are doomed. You go to a Christian, or you go to a secular university, you're gonna walk away. Chances are you are gonna walk away, I told her. She sat down, I called another kid, stood up. Do you believe the Bible's true? He says, yes, I do. Why do you believe that the Bible's real? This kid said, well, that's the only thing I've ever, I've ever heard all my life. I was brought up in this culture, so that's what I've always believed. I said, you're doomed. Went to the next person, stood up. His name was Joel. I'll never forget this. Joel, do you believe that the word of God is, is true, that all this stuff in here is true? He says, oh, definitely. I said, why do you say that? He says, I have studied the archaeology. I have studied the science behind it, and I have seen the evidence there is no doubt in my mind everything in that Bible is real. He made it his own. He wasn't writing on his parents' coattails or somebody else's coattails. He had made the Word of God his own. It was his own faith, his own decision. And I'm telling you, that's what you need to do. If you're writing on your, just because someone told you, even if it's me, just told you that the Word of God is true, boy, Satan is waiting with a sword as soon as you walk out. You've got to study this and see for yourself. That's why I lead trips to Israel, to let people see this is real. <laughs> By the way, as I was studying this and writing this lesson back this past winter, I had this sitting on a, on a table in my back room. I'm sitting in my office there. And I started just looking at this thing, and I saw that the helmet is made of three parts. There is the crest, the plumage on top. There is the, the crown, the bowl that covers your head. And then there's the guards, which cover your cheek and your neck. And I was sitting here, and I started thinking during this Bible study, this is Bible study time, I started thinking, why did God take the helmet and call the helmet salvation? Why was it called that? 
And so I'm sitting here and I'm noticing these three things. One, two, three. One, two, three. Why is this called salvation? All of a sudden, it's like the Holy Spirit just makes things clear. When you're doing a study like this, all of a sudden it dawned on me. Basic theology. It's in three parts. Do you know that salvation is in three parts? This is not a coincidence. This, I believe, is designed by God. There's three parts of salvation. The first one is what I've just described to you. That's justification. That's the moment you accept Christ as your Savior. He is your Lord. You are justified. Now you have peace with God, but that's justification. That's becoming saved. I hope and pray every single one of you have come to this part of your salvation. If you have, now some people think, well, that's it. I'm done. I'm saved. I don't have anything to worry about. I got my insurance policy. Do not go to hell card. I'm ready to go. I can live my life and do whatever I want. Uh, wrong. Because the second part of salvation is what you see here. It's called sanctification. What is sanctification? It's our growth in God's grace uh, in our life on this earth. What's going on in Christians? We're just not saved and done. We're now being transformed into an image of Jesus Christ. God tells us that over and over that he is transforming us. He will use circumstances to make us to be more and more like Jesus. I'm going to issue you a challenge. It's a challenge I picked up many, many years ago when I was younger, and I'm going to give you the same challenge. On December 31st, I do this every year. On December 31st, I'll take about 15 minutes out of my day, and I will sit and do a careful examination. What is my spiritual life like this year as opposed to the year before? Can I see spiritual growth? And that's my goal, is to see spiritual growth. Am I walking closer with God than I was the year before? I do that every December 31st. Because that's what we're supposed to be seeing, spiritual growth, getting closer to God. Our lives should be more, we should be becoming more and more transformed into the image of Christ. Of course, we're never going to get there until we get there, until the very end. But that is what sanctification is. And you know how you get this way? One of the key things in getting that way, you want to find out how Jesus was and how we're being transformed and what we need to be transformed into? Boy, you better study the 66 love letters God wrote you. Because he's telling you in here how you do that. And not just read it, apply it to your life, but that means you have to study this. Not read it like a novel, study it in detail. There's nothing special about me. Don't think because I'm standing here teaching you and telling you all this stuff that I'm some God special person or something. I'm a person just like any one of you. I'm just older, a lot older. I feel it every morning. <laughs> But one thing I did learn is that to study that thing takes time and commitment. I did a study on the book of Galatians about five years ago. I decided I'm going to study Galatians word by word. Now, Galatians is not a big book. It took me six months of doing that for about a half an hour, a minimum of half an hour every single day. To, sometimes I went a little longer, sometimes I go two hours, because sometimes I get into it, and I almost, I, I many times get so much into a Bible study, and I, I, God will do this with all of you if you really commit to it. I sometimes forget to eat lunch. The other day I got up, I got up in the morning, got all cleaned up, sat down, I, already, I read my Bible as soon as I get up in the morning. First thing I do, I mean the very first thing I ever do, as I get up, I go, I pick up a Bible, I sit down, and I start reading until my mind is really going. And I set that aside. Then I get cleaned up. I go to the kitchen. I sit down. I'll make myself a breakfast. And as I do my breakfast, I will sit in and I will do a more serious Bible study on a different topic. And so I'm doing another Bible study. Sometimes I have forgotten to eat breakfast. 
Last week, I did this. I actually got up, uh, got all cleaned up, went into the kitchen, sat down, started doing my Bible study. And then I got up and I walked into the bathroom. My wife is getting ready to come over to Fort Two. She's brushing her hair and stuff like that. And she says, uh, she walked out of the bathroom, came back in as I was standing there brushing my teeth and everything. And she says, did you eat breakfast? And I go, no, I didn't, did I? I, I got so engrossed in my Bible study, I forgot to eat. I do that a lot. Sometimes on my day off, when I'm spending some extra time doing a Bible study, my wife will come down. She says, do you plan on eating lunch today? You know, it's like 2 o'clock. Really? I just get so in love with this thing. It's fun when you do this. And I love to do word-for-word studies and stuff and, and things like that because, wow, you just, well, I'm a scientist. I like to study things. I like to get into it. My gosh. But I've been doing a study on the Gospel of John I, haven't, I don't do it in the summertime because I don't have time to commit to that type of a study in the summer. I try to do, um, do that. I'll pick it up starting next month. But the thing is, I've been doing John for three and a half years. I'm only in chapter nine. Three and a half years. And these Bible studies, I have sat sometimes for like five hours doing. There's so much in, in, information in there, it takes me a while to get all this. It's phenomenal. Sanctification, growing to be more like Christ. Pick up the challenge. The third part is glorification. That's what's to come. That's when we die or we are raptured and we go to heaven and we become like he is. There is no more sin. There is no more pain. There is no more suffering. That's the part that Paul was writing all the time. I can't wait for, the, for that part of my salvation to be fulfilled. We should all be like that too. That's the glorification. This is in the future. If you are saved, if you're not saved, if you've never accepted Jesus Christ, you still got to do this. And I pray you do it. If you are a born-again Christian, this is the stage you're in right now. You should be seeing growth. But salvation is in three parts. That helmet's in three parts. So, being it's in three parts, salvation is the absolute confidence in the saving power of God through his grace. Our salvation assures us of eternal life, and it leaves no room for doubt. Satan's weapon will just bounce off that helmet when you study this more. Go to the next one. Sword of the Spirit. Ooh, I love this one. And the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. My Roman sword. Yep, a lot of fun. There's a lot of fingerprints on this thing. I need to clean this again. People keep handling it. The sword of the Spirit, the primary weapon of a Roman soldier. Double-edged, sort of short. It's not as long as that broadsword. Romans had long swords, but they preferred this one. Their first battles, when their kingdom was going, they used bigger swords. As they started developing and learning things and conquering other nations, remember I told you they'd find something good? They would incorporate it into their army. That's what this was. This sword was a Roman, what we call the Roman sword, was actually a Spanish sword called a gladius. It was short, double-edged, pointed. It has this short length because you want to get close to your enemy. The big sword you're very vulnerable in. People often ask me, well, if you were to have a sword fight, Michael, if I was to fight you and you have a pick of which sword do you want, which one do you want? I always take this one. This one's a lot heavier. It weighs twice as much as this one. person's going to tire quicker with this. And also with this sword here, you are vulnerable many times in the way you attack. Because when you go up to swing at a person like that, you are opened up like this. You are totally exposed. You try the other side, you are totally exposed. And swords are not just offensive weapons, they can be defensive weapons. You can use this so easily to block in any situation. 
It works like a shield in a lot of ways. You can block things. You can thrust. You can slash. But this was primarily a thrusting and twisting. Thrust in and twist. Thrust in and twist. That's what they did. And it was a very effective. Lightweight. You could swing this thing a long time and not get that tired. This one, you swing around a couple times, you're pretty tired. There was great advantage to these things. Paul identifies this weapon as the word of God. It is a spiritual weapon used not only to thrust and to stab, but as I said, it can deflect blows, almost like a shield. You've all seen movies with sword fights, how they thrust this thing, how they block blows with it and stuff. There's a lot of things you can do with this thing. It's so effective. One of the greatest sword fights ever recorded in literature is actually a spiritual one between Satan and Jesus. It takes place in Matthew chapter 4, the temptation of Jesus. What did Satan do? Satan comes in, and there's three major temptations. In every one of those temptations, he's trying to twist the God's, God's word. As I told you, Satan knows this better than you guys do, better than all of us combined. He could quote it frontwards and backwards. He knows this. And so he twists it like he did with Eve in the garden, as I told you earlier this week. He'll twist God's saying. So he went up and he would swing at Jesus with his distortions of Scripture and with his temptations. And Jesus, how did he counter? Do you remember what he did? In every one of the temptations, when Satan threw a temptation at Jesus, how did he counter it? I'm sorry? He used scripture right back. Exactly. That was a sword fight. God had a sword fight with Satan, and every time Satan would use his deceptive weapon of doubt and, and, um, and trying to twist scripture and stuff around, Jesus used the book of Deuteronomy right back at him. Every quote Jesus made in that conflict came right out of Deuteronomy, and he quoted it right back. Satan will attack you like that, folks. He will try and get you to see and to sin. He will get you to twist Scripture around. He will do this without you even realizing it if you don't know this very well. It is so imperative you study this thing so that you don't fall into those traps. And when he does attack you, that you have weaponry to fight back with. Having a sword, hosting this and just sitting it on your mantle above your fireplace or on a wall doesn't do you any good. Getting out the Bible, sitting it on a counter or on a bookshelf doesn't do you any good. You've got to train. With a sword, you can take lessons. You can take fencing lessons. You can take sword fighting lessons. They offer stuff like that. You get more efficient with it. There's a thing called Bible study is how you get efficient with this. It's so important that we do this. Don't underestimate our enemy. He is smart. He has spies all around watching you constantly, looking for where you're weak, looking for where you are ignorant in the word of God, and that's where he strikes you. He's not going to strike you with your, where you're strong. He's going to come at you where you're weak, and he's going to hit you when you are the weakest. He is smart, and he will attack you. But this weapon, the word of God, is for parring. It's for thrusting. It's for for stabbing. It does all of this. It's a phenomenal weapon. You really think that you're going to go into battle without having ever practiced and do a lot of good against a master swordsman? You've got to study this. And this weapon, oh, the Word of God, this weapon 
transforms people. It has the ability to cut through falsehoods. It can slice away the cloud of doubt and expose truth. It can cut through the deepest darkness of despair, the deepest depression that Satan can throw at you. That can do it. It can just shed the light of joy and victory in your life. It cuts a path from hell to salvation's door. This is a phenomenal weapon. I'm reminded of a person, I won't say who it is, but I was reminded of a person who a few years ago was brought down to the deepest despair I think I've ever seen anybody in my entire life. I went, she was in a hotel room suffering terribly. I and others went there, tried to help and comfort her. She was laying on a bed, totally in tears, totally broken, totally smashed. This is a Christian that has been deceived and has been so crushed under satanic attack. And I'll never forget the image of what I saw that day because at the foot of her bed, sitting on the covers, was her Bible. She's up at the head of the bed. And at one point, as we're sitting there and it's very silent in the room and she is just suffering and we're just there. We're not trying to, to preach and stuff. We're just there. Some of the best counseling is just being present and keeping your mouth shut. But I'll never forget her getting up forcing her way and clawing her way to the end of the bed to get to her Bible and opened it up to a psalm. And then she sat and read that with tears running down her face. I will never in my life forget that moment because she reached for the sword. This will cut through anything, but you've got to know she knew what psalm to go to. Would you? You've got to do Bible studies. Not read it as a novel. You've got to get into this. Take notes. Write things. Some of you guys I know are writing notes right now through this whole thing. Some of you have little notebooks out. Phenomenal. That encourages my heart so much. Others don't even bring your Bible to a Bible study. You got me puzzled. Write little things down, see things, underline, use color markers, draw doodles to help you remember stuff. <sighs> Study your Bible. The last thing, we're about out of time, but the last thing here real quick, prayer. Ephesians 6:18, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. The tool that is most often at our easiest availability is the one we use the least. It's not even put in the pamphlets. Prayer is a weapon. It's one of the most powerful weapons you will ever come across. Notice that we're able, uh, we are to pray at all times, it says. Pray at all times? Yes, this keeps us on the alert. That's a word he uses later on. Be on the alert, keep praying all the time. You'll be on the alert, ready to fight at a moment's notice. Being like a minute man in a revolutionary war. They were ready to go, just, hey, British are coming. Okay, boy, let's go. Always alert, ready to go. And by the way, did you notice that this is not an option? God doesn't say, oh, by the way, when you feel like it, pray. Oh, when times are tough, pray. Oh, when you feel joyful, pray. That's not what he said. He said pray all the time. That is a command. That's not an option. We are supposed to all the time be in prayer. Uh, some people are like, well, how can I be in prayer and driving a car or something like that? I'll get in an accident or whatever. I remember when I was in fifth grade, I decided one day, I, I thought I knew my neighborhood so well, I could ride my bicycle home from blocks away with my eyes closed. I grew up on these streets. I knew it. So I got on my bicycle. And I started riding, I got in the middle of the street, there wasn't much traffic, I got in the middle of the street, I figured I'd hear a car anyway. And I just started riding down the middle of the street. And I'm pedaling fast, and I'm trying to get home and proving to myself, I know my way, because I know how to get home. I ran right into a telephone pole. <laughs> I don't know how that telephone pole got in the middle of the road. 
But I crashed, got all beat up. I was bleeding and everything. I, I mean, I was not just riding my bicycle. I was riding my bicycle. <laughs> Boom! That's not what this means. Like praying, I got my eyes closed, Lord, I'm praying, keep the cars away from hitting me. No, that's not what he's saying. And it's not, this isn't the only place you find this. In Romans 12, 12, be constant in prayer. 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, pray without ceasing. This verse here scares so many Christians, they don't know what in the world they're doing. And that's Satan again, trying to get us confused. Let me explain this, this is really simple. What's it mean to pray all the time? Really simple solution. It means to live in the moment of prayer all the time. You can't get away from God. Do you really realize that God is with you all the time? I mean, do you really believe that? I mean, do you really believe that? And since he's with you wherever you are, he wants you to realize this. Hey, Michael, I'm right here with you all the time. I'm never leaving you. If you really lived like that in the mindset that God is right there with you and in you, it'll change the way you do things. If we really believe that God is with us all the time, I was counseling a person one time, this adult man, he says, I have the hardest time with, with pornography when my, I'm at home by myself and my family is gone and there's nobody there with me. I said, why does that matter? Why does it matter if your wife and your kids are not in the house? Why are you alone? Because when I'm alone, it's, it's too easy to get into this. And I said, but do you, you're a Christian, right? Yeah. Do you believe that God is everywhere? Yeah. I don't think you do. I don't think you really believe that. You hide your screen from your wife, don't you realize Christ is sitting right next to you through the whole thing? And what you are forcing him to sit and watch? I don't think you really believe that God is everywhere. He finally admitted, he says, I don't. I didn't. We change the way our mind thinks like that, that God is with us all the time. We might change the way we live our lives. To pray all the time means to live your life in a way that you're always God conscious of his presence like you're talking to him as your best friend. Let me give you this illustration real fast. Say, for instance, you got a super, super close friend who moved away many years ago. She calls you up, she says, tell you what, I'm gonna come, I'm gonna be there at dawn tomorrow morning, I'm gonna spend the whole day with you. I'm gonna spend 24 hours, we're gonna have the greatest time together. I wanna do everything with you. You're all excited, they come. Now, how much do you talk to that person during that day? Do you just like in the morning, if they brought you a meal for breakfast, oh, Thank you for the food. So they buy lunch. Thank you for lunch. They buy supper. Thank you for supper. Is that the only time you ever pray to God? Or before you went to bed that night, now I lay me down to sleep. Pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake. Is that all you talk to that person? What type of relationship would you have if you only talked with your best friend like that as much as you talk with God? Or put it this way, what kind of marriage do you think you would have? I know you're not married. Someday some of you will be. What type of marriage do you think you would have if you only talked to your spouse as much as you talked to God? Communication is so important. A college student asked me a couple of years ago, asked me a question, I don't understand why I need to pray. God already knows everything that I need. He's already promised he'll give me everything. He knows every prayer request I'd ever make. Why should I pray? I said, you're missing a key thing in prayer. Prayer is communication. Communication is a relationship. That's how you stay close with someone. Don't you have a best friend? How close would you be to your best friend if you never talked to them? That's what this is talking about, too. Live in a mindset, but know that he's there the whole time and spend more time talking. You don't have to have, you don't have to get down and just say a formal prayer. 
You don't have to recite the Lord's Prayer every day. Matter of fact, that prayer scares me to death. I know some churches, they do it every single Sunday. It scares me to death. I went to church one time, they did that every Sunday. I just stopped saying it. You ever really understand what you're praying when you pray that? Our Father which art in heaven, that's good. How would be our name? I like that. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Nothing wrong with that. On earth it is in heaven, keep it coming. Give us this day our daily bread. Yeah, Lord, feed me. I like that. What's the next part? What? Do not lead us into temptation. Okay. What? I didn't hear that one. I'm sorry? Let's go back. Um, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us those our trespasses or our debts as we forgive those who trespass against us. You know what you're saying with that? Lord, I want you to forgive me of my sins the same way I forgive people when they sin against me. Do you really want God to do that? It scares me to death. I mean, we should all be like that. It's a command from God. We should. But I'm you in too. That's, that's a difficult one. It scares me. This is a powerful part of our armor. Prayer opens up resources that only God can supply. It goes beyond the boundaries of our minds, beyond our expectations. Praying at all times in the, spirit mean, in the Spirit means to be in perfect harmony with His will. You know He's there all the time. He's never leaving you, and you are living in harmony right with Him. That's the armor of God. Unfortunately, we are out of time. But before I go, or before you guys go, I have something I want to give you as a reminder of this. I have bought pins. It's not much, but there's been hundreds of people in here this summer. But I have pins, one for everybody. You might want to check the back. It's an Armor of God pin. Pin it somewhere to help remind you of what the Spirit of God has been trying to teach you this week. You're all welcome to have one. I have a box of this thing. i got tons of these. So I want you to have one of those, please. When you leave, you can take one. Please do. And let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you so much. And what an awesome God you are. And I pray that, Lord, everyone in this room is in the part of salvation called justification, that we are all living in the part of sanctification. And, Lord, I pray that you help sanctify us, that we become more and more like Christ. Lord, I pray for these young people because I know they have no idea really what's in store for them in their life. None of us do, myself included. But help them to realize that you are there all the time. And forgive us when we drag you into places or make you see things or do things, Lord. That just goes so much against your character. Give us faith in your word and keep them safe and away from Satan's attack and his demons that are constantly on the prowl trying to bring them down. May this pin, Lord, help remind them of the promises you have made. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.